Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, just uh, just about 24 hours since we started this adventure. How are we doing? <clears throat> Awakening joy? It's not usually uh, the program on the first day. Um, just a little uh, weather report, check in to see the general experience. Uh, how many people were sleepy today? Take a look around. Hmm, you're not alone. I had a feeling. How many people were restless today? Okay. How many people uh, had um, aches in the body? Mm -hmm. Look around. And uh, busy mind? <laughs> you're doing great. Yeah. <laughs> you're right on schedule. I had a feeling. Because that's part of the deal on a, a retreat, the first day, whether you are new or you've been doing this for decades, that's what we're going through now, the settling in period. And it takes some getting used to. It's a bit like a, a detox from stimulation, from our habits, from the comforts and routines that we're used to. You're being told, okay, sit still for 45 minutes or so. Uh, now walk in a mindful way for 30 or 45 minutes. Eat mindfully. Um, do a, a job, perhaps, a work meditation. Sleep in a bed that you're not familiar with, or maybe with a roommate. All of those things are almost guaranteed to bring up some resistance. I'm like, why did I sign up for this? Yeah. <laughs> what was I thinking? Uh, e again, even if you've been doing it for a long time. So I, I wanted first for you to know that this is the natural process. And I give myself three days at least to just land. I'm doing the practice, but letting go of any kind of idea of what's supposed to be happening and am I doing it right or not. You just show up and all you need to do, your end of the deal, is to have the intention to be here as best you can, as present as you can for whatever moment you find yourself in. And when you realize you've been gone, to come back with great kindness and patience and begin again. And in that simple exercise, something very amazing starts to happen over the course of the days. You actually do land in the present and then it's quite a profound understanding not only understanding experience, to more and more appreciate and fall in love with the present moment. Fall in love with your life, basically, or the life that is being offered to you. So I want to talk tonight um, particularly about 
this theme of the retreat and why we're teaching awakening joy. Uh, so you have a context of both the approach and some uh, ways to uh, directly incorporate it into your practice. So first, awakening joy. Now that, that is a phrase itself that some people say, yeah, and others say, give me a break, you know. I'll take not being miserable, thank you. And I start by saying, okay, notice moments when you're not miserable. That's a, at least a, you know, a bar that most people can attain from time to time. But I want to first explain why I, why I uh, ended up writing a book and teaching a course and, and uh, really enjoy teaching these retreats um, because I went through a process that is not unfamiliar and that is after I fell in love with the Dharma where I was looking for something uh, to somehow address the inner turmoil and um, uh, confusion and suffering that I felt inside. I was highly motivated because that was what was going on for me. And then when I heard the Dharma from Joseph Goldstein, who was mentioned here before in uh, 1974 at Naropa Institute, it was the first summer of Naropa, and it was like I found what I'm looking for. And I had what's called a, a long honeymoon period where all I cared about and wanted to tell everybody was, you just have to be mindful. You just have to be mindful. There's the Dharma and everything's gonna work out. And at some point the honeymoon ended and I became very serious about my practice. Dead serious about my practice. Emphasis on the dead. And I lost my joy. I gotta fix this a bit. Uh, and I, um, I was hearing the teachings in a certain way. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on, on suffering in this, in this teaching. Uh, there's the Four Noble Truths, there's the truth that there is suffering in life, as, uh, as Dawn said before, or, or Deborah, not that all of life is suffering, but there is suffering in life, it's the first truth. Then there's a cause of suffering, then there's an end to suffering, and then there's a path leading to the end to suffering, and all of those are brilliant teachings that can lead to full awakening. But with so much um, emphasis, direct emphasis on the word suffering or dukkha in the teachings, one can forget that this is about cultivating true well-being. As I said, I think yesterday, the Buddha was called the happy one and uh, the the Dalai Lama starts out his wonderful book, The Art of Happiness, with the line, the purpose of life is to be happy. It's a great line to start a book, isn't it? Just let that line land. The purpose of life is to be happy. 
Because when we can, as has been said by someone, and when we can get in touch with our own happiness and well-being, then everybody gets the benefit of the goodness that shines through you when it's not obstructed with patterns of thought and confusions and doubts and all of those things that get in the way. But as many people um, experience, I distorted some teachings to, um, uh, to, to miss, I think, misunderstand the Buddha saying, um, all of life is suffering, not there is suffering in life, and let's get out of here as fast as we can. I, I sat with a wonderful, um, powerful, and challenging Burmese master for three months every evening, the, the end of his talks, he would say, may you speedily attain Nibbana and escape from the woes of this world. And it's easy to distort messages like that to think, oh, it's not okay to have my natural love of life and celebration of life, which is another part of my, my lineage. I was uh, first inspired by getting into this all by reading Be Here Now, which many people in my generation, how many people have read Be Here Now here? Yeah, it's a book that spoke to me and Neem Karoli Baba, Ramdas's guru, just leaped out of the pages into my heart and something opened saying, ah, life is amazing and let's appreciate to the fullest and celebrate along with seeing all the the challenges and the suffering. So that was, there was a kind of dissonance there when I took on those other teachings uh, and had some, I think, mis misinterpretation. And as I said, I lost my joy and I wasn't alone. I want to read to you from Ajahn Sumedha, one of the most respected, the senior Western monk in Theravadan Buddhism, which is the lineage that we practice here that's taught in uh, come down and, uh, and, and uh, shared in Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka. It's the, el the oldest teachings of the Buddha, Theravada, teachings of the elders. This is what Ajahn Sumedho says. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of experience. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy.
and in the teachings, the Buddha talks in many different ways about these states of well-being. There's joy is uh, one of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's it's uh, the Pali word is piti in that list. It's one of the four Brahma Viharas, sympathetic joy, mudita, which we'll uh, be exploring a little bit later in the retreat. It's one of the five jhana factors. It's, there are many different names and different flavors of what I'm calling joy. There's sukha, happiness, pamoja, gladness. There's words for contentment, peace. Many, many beautiful states of being. So when I say the word joy, if it snags you in your mind, uh, translate it in a way that really works for you. And really what I'm talking about is well-being. It's just not as catchy to say awakening well-being as awakening joy. Uh, and joy is a word that is used in these teachings, but whatever flavor really resonates whether it's a more quiet kind of an internal contentment or a more effervescent um, uh, delight. What we're talking about is awakening well-being inside. So after I went through a period where I did lose my joy and became really serious, even though conceptually I knew better, but internally, viscerally, there was a kind of conflict inside. At some point, I, I asked, wait a second, or I said, this can't be right. The, the Buddha couldn't have been speaking about going against your nature and appreciating the goodness in things and in life. So I, fortunately, instead of turning my back on the teachings, I wanted to look more deeply and see what did the Buddha actually say about joy and well-being and happiness. And as I said, there's many beautiful teachings. And what I found particularly were three principles, three teachings from the suttas that really spoke to me, that helped me put it together, not just about happiness and well-being on the cushion, on the meditative cushion, but in our lives, how to practice it and develop it. So I wanna share with you those three teachings of the Buddhas and give you a sense of what we're doing here and how, we will, how this retreat will hopefully unfold. So three teachings. First is the teaching on wise effort or right effort one of the uh, links in the Eightfold Path. Wise effort is spoken of with, um, as being a key um, principle and understanding. This doesn't happen without effort, but technically wise effort talks about four different aspects of our um, our interface with the world and our development of certain qualities. Two have to do with what are called unwholesome states. Akusala is the Pali word. They are guarding against 
unwholesome states when they arise and overcoming unwholesome states, sorry, guarding against them to prevent them from arising and overcoming them when they do arise. Unwholesome states are states of suffering. You probably are familiar with a few of them. Greed, hatred, delusion, jealousy, envy, Fear is, a, uh, is a, an unwholesome state, judgment, contraction, confusion, all of those states that are painful and lead to more suffering when we get caught in them. So he says, guard against them, do what you can to prevent them from happening, and when they do arise, which they do, they're just part of being human, learn techniques and tools to overcome them and not be swept away by them, which is a very important aspect of what we're doing here. And then there are the other two aspects of wise effort have to do with wholesome states, kusala, K-U-S-A-L-A. These are states of well-being like joy, kindness, loving kindness, compassion, um, equanimity, uh, generosity, all of those states, these beautiful states that feel good in the moment and also lead to more well-being. He says, cultivate those states and when they're here, the fourth wise effort is to maintain and increase wholesome states once they've arisen. He says, this is a good thing to maintain and increase the wholesome state when it's here. Now that might sound a little strange. Hold on a moment. To maintain and increase a wholesome state, isn't that attachment? Did that cross anyone's mind? But here's the tricky part. Unwholesome states are states of contraction. Wholesome states are states of expansion. And so when there's a wholesome state, if you think the idea is to somehow keep it here or try, to try hard to make it bigger, you've just turned it into an unwholesome state. Oh, I love that wholesome state. Please don't go away. How do I make it stay? How do I make it more? So this is the piece that we'll be particularly focusing on and including in our practice here. How to maintain and increase wholesome states when they've arisen. And this leads to the second teaching that really struck me. And this is in... Uh, Majima Nikaya number 99, if there are scholars here or like to look those things up, um, where he says, accompanying a wholesome state, there is a feeling of gladness. What he calls gladness connected with the wholesome. And he says, that gladness I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. And he says, that gladness one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the Dhamma, 
when you are in touch with that gladness because that feeling of uplift is very powerful. And this is the next piece that will be, uh, I want to underscore for you to understand, to tune into the gladness connected with the wholesome. As an example, he says, you might be in the middle of a generous act. And he says, think to yourself, I'm being generous right now. This is what it says right in the discourse. I'm being generous. He says, this is a good thing. He's not saying, check it out. You know, I hope everybody sees how generous I am. No, he's saying, Notice how good it feels for generosity to move through us. Just notice how that feeling of uplift that comes with it. That gladness is an equipment of mind to disarm all ill will and hostility. So the key piece that maintains and increases the wholesome state without attachment is to not miss that gladness, to just pay attention to it, which is not something that we usually do. When we're feeling good, we might know, feeling pretty good right now, but there's an extra little piece that we can use the practice to apply and say, this is what it feels like to feel good. Not just knowing it here, but to be really immersed and not miss that feeling of uplift. Often when people do the joy course, they, they, they say, really, it, it comes down to three words for many people. Here are the three words. Don't miss it. Because we can easily miss those states of well-being as we are so focused on what is wrong or what, where the next danger is. We're wired up that way. We have these almond-shaped cluster of neurons in our brain called the amygdala that scans the horizon for danger and what can go wrong. And it's a good thing that we have that, but we can be so skilled at looking for the next thing to go wrong or to be, be vigilant that we can miss those moments of well-being and when we pay attention to them, we amplify them. This is how neuroscience has seen uh, this work. Rick Hansen, who may, many of you probably know, who's a neuroscience expert and, and a, a, a dear friend, uh, he has a, a, a simple formula. He says, when you have a moment of well-being, if you can pay attention to it and really let it register, sink in with awareness for 15 seconds, if you can do that six times in a day, I know that's 90 seconds of well-being if you can handle it, and you do that over a two-week period, you will probably notice a shift in your general level 
of well-being, both because you're deepening the neural pathways and because you're starting to be on the lookout for moments of well-being, which is not how most of us tend to see the world. And so this is one thing that we'll be doing. You have a whole week here to cultivate those moments, not to deny or dismiss the moments of non-well-being. I'll get to that and we will definitely get to that as you probably have had a few this today. Uh, so it's not to deny the other. It's learning how to work with the other, but to not miss the moments of goodness. And that starts a whole new trend, which leads to the third principle, where the Buddha says, whatever one, this is a Majjhima number 19, Majjhima Nikaya uh, 19, he says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Or in modern neuroscience, the axiom is neurons that fire together, wire together. It's the same thing. We're all creatures of habit and what we tend to practice becomes our inclination of mind. And it is also strongly affected by what we tend to look for. There is another phenomenon in, in modern neuroscience that's quite well known and substantiated called confirmation bias. And that means that what your belief system is, what you look for, you will notice because your brain selectively picks out what will confirm your bias. So if you're looking for how everybody is gonna disappoint you, you'll, you'll notice those times that that happens and kind of miss out or not really let it register all the times that people don't. Or if you're looking for how humanity is going down the tubes, you'll have ample evidence to confirm that. But that's not the whole story. That's not the whole picture. If you look for how people really want to be safe and be loved and love, or there's a goodness in there if we can find it, you will not only find it, but you'll actually bring it out. That's a whole other piece that we'll get to later on. You can actually, what you look for, you'll see. Or if you look for how amazing it is to be alive in this world, that's what your brain will start to confirm and notice. Again, not in denial of the other, but it opens you up to the 10,000 joys as well as the 10,000 sorrows, as it's said in Taoism. If you look for how much consciousness and goodness there is and how many caring people there are in this world that wanna make this a better planet, it will inspire you. So it's all what we look for and what we incline our minds to. <clears throat> so given that, 
In fact, before I go on, just think of, uh, I invite you to take a moment and think of something that brings you joy. Maybe the last time that you were involved in the situation or experience. Just go back and if you can remember the last time. And as you recall, remember how it felt. Maybe you even just get a little taste of it right now. How did it feel inside? Okay, you can open your eyes. Let's just take a a few comments. Um, What brings you joy? And you have to say it out real loud so I can hear it. What came to your mind? What is it? Rubbing your dog's belly in the morning. And how, did it, how does it feel when you just remembered? How did it feel for you inside? Ease and peace. Okay. We'll take a few comments. All the way in the back, loud. Your first retreat. Oh, good. He's, a, he's the testimony for, for us. Yeah. And how did it feel as you think back? Bliss comes up. Okay, fine. Anything else? I'm not looking for anything special. Yes, right here. When my favorite baseball team wins the World Series. Okay, when your team wins the World Series or your favorite basketball team, whatever. And how does it feel? Overwhelmingly what? Blissful. Okay. One more. Uh, completely different. What's that? Connection with a friend, beautiful. And how, how does it feel when you think about that? Warm and open. Warm and open. You see, all of these are about expansiveness and openness and aliveness, okay? So this is not something foreign to you. We all have this capacity. And what we want to do is to um, cultivate the practice where we're noticing all of those good moments and, uh, yeah, not missing them. We all want to be happy. Anyone here that doesn't want to be happy? And if you're somebody that really feels like saying, I like being grumpy, that's just your way of being happy. (laughs) Whatever turns you on. But everything you do, if you take a look at it, you do probably because it will, you sense that it will make you feel a bit better or maybe a little less bad. It might be very misguided, as it often is for many of us, but there is something in you that is rooting for your happiness. It's been rooting for your happiness all along. As confused as we can get, it's right there and Now we want to give life and acknowledge and be honest. Yes, I really do want to be happy. Now, lots of things get in the way of that sincere, deep wish inside. Sometimes people can feel it's not okay to be happy. Sometimes people can feel well, do I don't deserve it. Maybe they also feel with so much suffering in the world, how can I let myself be happy? 
And these are legitimate habits of mind, and they are just habits of mind. But it's important to see the things that get in the way of your well-being. And I'll just address that last one as far as the suffering in the world, because it's something that is dear to me to somehow process all the craziness and all the insanity and all the the ignorance and the mean-spiritedness and the confusion and all the pain that so many, often those who um, who are uh, least um, fortunate and privileged um, to, uh, to experience. So I want to address that. Before I do, something that I forgot to say at the beginning that I'd appreciate is, if you could sit up for a Dharma talk, that would be really appreciated. So uh, it just makes it a, a, a different kind of a feeling in the hall. Uh, so I don't feel guilty or anything, but I just really, it, it makes a difference for me. Thanks. There's so much suffering in this world. But if we feel guilty about our own joy or happiness, then we're just adding to that contraction and sadness and hopelessness. We need your joy and happiness. And I want to share with you an inspiring quote from me. (laughs) Not from me. No, no, no. It's an inspiring quote for it. It inspires me. No, 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 no. That would be really bad. Yeah. An inspiring quote from Howard Zinn, who wrote um, The People's History of the United States, The Unwhitewashed History, uh, who happened to be John Kabat-Zinn's father-in-law, but really one of the most honest and powerful historians uh, in in the 20th century. And this is what he says about this. He says, an optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness, What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act and at least the possibility of sending the spinning top of a world in a different direction. As was said before, it's a gift to the world to cultivate your own well-being. Guilt does not add anything but more sorrow and suffering, but to use our well-being and give it as a an expression of our gratitude. So what we're doing here, let me explain now the next piece. So given those three principles, 
noticing, cultivating wholesome states and increasing them when they're here by being very present for the gladness and feeling of uplift when, they're, when it's arising and over time inclining the mind towards that way of taking, of connecting with the world so that it's not exclusively what's wrong but also what's good in here. Then we can apply that to various wholesome states that are spoken of in the teachings that the Buddha said, this is a good thing to cultivate. And what I then did, and what we'll be kind of going through um, to a large extent here, are looking at different wholesome states that one can cultivate consciously and when they do arise, don't miss it. So I'll mention two, the first two in this sequence of 10 different states that start the whole process in motion. The first, and this is what the Buddha spoke of as well, is intention. The intention whether you call it to wake up, to be free, to be truly happy. The Buddha said, go for the highest happiness and all the other ones will follow. The intention starts the whole process going. Is uh, one famous teaching the Buddha says, intending I tell you is karma through body, speech and mind intention creates karma. Or as a famous Tibetan teaching says, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. In the Eightfold Path, after understanding, wise understanding, if you go to the, uh, I'm sure when you go through the gate and you see that, uh, that carousel, that prayer, prayer wheel is the all different eightfold uh, links. After wise understanding where you see, oh, this is where happiness lies, comes wise intention or right intention, which basically is saying, I'm going for it. And your decision to go for it is the secret ingredient in this whole process. Because you can read about all this stuff and say, yeah, that sounds pretty good. That's a good idea. You know, I, I like that philosophy. It's, yeah, I, you know, yeah, nice to chill out and not grasp so much and, you know, be free. Uh, yeah, maybe someday I'll give it a try. But when you say, as I did when I first encountered those teachings in 1974, I'm going for it. Once you make that decision, everything follows from it. And so our first wholesome state is the intention to be happy. And I put it that way because it's a little bit more mm, starker than the intention to 
fully enlighten and, uh, and to um, overcome all greed, hatred, and delusion, which is a wonderful intention. I'd say, do go for that. But don't postpone it. We postpone our happiness and our well-being. We often will say, oh, when I meet the right person, then I'll be happy. You know, and the dopamine goes on for about 18 months and then you're left with, oh, okay, now who is this person? That now, then it's, it's worth it, but, and it's work. It's not gonna guarantee you eternal bliss. It's a good start, but not to think, oh, when I meet that person, a lot of people, and the Buddha highly recommended the single life, and we know many people who are in relationships who are not particularly happy, that start out completely in love. That's not guaranteed. Or when I get the right job, then I'll be happy. Or when I make enough money, then I'll be happy. Or when I retire, then I'll be happy. Don't wait for your retirement. How about right now? This is a moment of your life which has never been here before and will never be here again. Don't postpone it, at least to the point of saying, how can I meet this moment in a way that supports my well-being? Not, oh, let's have bliss in every moment, but how can I support my well-being by meeting this moment wisely and skillfully? So that's the first thing, the intention to put well-being in the center of your life. And once you have that intention, everything else follows from that capacity. Here is a story I want to share with you just to show you the possibilities. This is from a, a book that I love, I love to share. Uh, called How We Choose to Be Happy by uh, uh, people who become friends of ours, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks, who went on a research project of three years searching out certifiably happy people. Right? They go to a, a place, they travel all around the States and Europe and Canada and Mexico too, and uh, look for the happiest person they could find. And when they found it, they'd say, well, are you happy? I say, yeah, pretty happy. Well, can we speak to other people who know you, who are, who are happy, who who would, you know, talk about you? And they can we speak to friends of yours or relatives, you know, or um, you know, co-workers? And if everybody would agree, yeah, surely she's pretty happy. They'd say, why are you so happy? And they distilled nine different common denominators from all these people. It's called How We Choose to Be Happy by Rick Foster and Greg Hicks. And the first of these, they're not all the same as this, this sequence, but the first one is the same. It's the intention to be happy. And I want to read to you Adele's story. You might think, oh, well, these people were just born that way. That's not so. This is Adele's story. 
In one horrible 24-month period, my life evaporated. I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground, leaving me with nothing. No clothes, photos, furniture, no material reminder of my previous life. It was the Oakland Fire in 1991. During that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman. At the same time, my restaurant went bankrupt. My best friend moved to Seattle. Even my dog died. I had nothing, she says. I was so filled with grief, I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go and that I should let my life go too. But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts about death. And I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity here. I had a clean slate. As long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, to feel I could handle anything that came my way. And I wanted to feel this way for the rest of my life. In spite of my grief, I could see this all added up to happiness for a lifetime. That was the power of her intention. And sometimes when you hit the bottom, you are so motivated, I'm gonna look for another way. But making that decision is the key one. I'm going for it. So before I go on and just make this a, a, a talk, I wanna make it real for you. I invite you now to just close your eyes for a moment And just reflect, perhaps you already have connected with a secret of happiness, but, and so there's no ceiling on it. But if you sense that, well, you signed up for an Awakening Joy Retreat, I guess there was some intention there. Just you sense that you can get better and better at opening up to well-being inside. Just imagine what it would look like six months from now, a year from now, if you got really good at noticing all the good inside and around you, and you really let it fill you and touch you and awaken all of that goodness. Imagine how it would feel inside and how it would affect everybody else around you. Family, friends, co-workers, if there are. Two years from now, getting really at ease and familiar with that, seeing all the good inside and around 
and the effect, the rippling effect. Just imagine, if you can, and if you can connect with a picture or a feeling inside. Here's the key. If it feels like a good idea, see if you can get in touch with the intention to do your part to help bring that about. Intention is more than just wishing or hoping something would happen. It's making the decision to do your part and then life, let life support you. Everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. That decision might be the most important one you can make in your life. And you might put in a few words that intention, whatever words connect with you, may, may I open up to as much happiness or well-being in my life. Just whatever words connect with you. And then one further thing, to see your happiness as the cause for happiness around you, widening your intention, because that becomes contagious, as we all know when we're around people who truly exude peace and ease and love. This is called clear comprehension of purpose in the teachings, where you have a wider vision that inspires you. Okay, and if you got in touch with something, keep coming back to that during this week because that is the start of the whole process. And now in the last few minutes, I wanna point to the next step, which is really the heart of what we'll be practicing here all week and why it is so essential to that intention. The first, intention to be happy. The second, wholesome state, which is what we practice here at Spirit Rock, mindfulness, what I call the basic tool for a joyful life. The Buddha said this is the most powerful and profound way to open to great well-being. In the Satipatthana Sutta, Majjhima number 10, he starts out, and this is this, the discourse that all of Buddhist meditation is based on, he says, there is one most direct way to overcome sorrow, lamentation, and grief, despair, and realize the highest happiness. And that is the cultivation of mindfulness. That's a pretty, pretty amazing thing, isn't it? Mindfulness leads to all of those things, overcoming pain and anxiety and realizing the highest happiness. 
Why? Because mindfulness of all of those wholesome and unwholesome states, mindfulness has one unique property. It weakens all the unwholesome states. It cultivates all the wholesome states. And when a wholesome state is here, when you bring mindfulness to it, it strengthens and amplifies that wholesome state. So that's why while we're here together, all you need to remember is to practice being present in a very simple way, knowing that you're breathing, knowing that you're hearing, knowing that you're feeling an emotion, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, doesn't matter. You're weakening the unwholesome and strengthening the wholesome. And when there is a wholesome state, be present for it. Don't miss it. So this is what we'll be doing and keep on coming back to as we open up to other wholesome states like self-compassion as Don was doing this, uh, this afternoon, just realizing, oh, let's be here for this. Let's hold it with kindness or other states that we'll, we'll keep on sharing. But the basic idea is just be present for it. Okay. So this is what we're cultivating, awakening well-being, awakening joy, not just for yourself, for everybody around you. And I'll just close with a poem that I, I love by Dana Falds that talks about the power of mindfulness. She says, it only takes a reminder to breathe, a moment to be still. And just like that, something in me settles, softens, makes space for imperfection. The harsh voice of judgment drops to a whisper. And I remember again that life isn't a relay race that we will all cross the finish line, that waking up to life is what we were born for. As many times as I forget, catching myself charging forward without even knowing where I'm going, that many times I can make the choice to stop, to breathe, to be, and to walk slowly into the mystery. So let's just uh, stop, breathe and be for a moment and let the words settle. Thank you very much for your attention. Um, I have about um, just over 20 minutes for walking. Uh, go out and enjoy the, 
the night air and we'll come back for one last sitting and uh, we'll do a little bit of uh, uh, chanting uh, at the end and maybe a little treat for you. So come on back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.